0: Genesis, chapter 32, starting with verse, sorry, yes, 32, starting with verse 22. That night, Jacob Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, his 11 sons, and crossed the ford of Jacob. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? And then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel saying, it is because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. On to Mark 7, and starting with verse 24. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. Yet he could not keep his present secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, she let, first let the children eat all they want, he told her for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she replied, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went and found the child lying on the bed and the demon gone.
1: Well, it's great to be here. Uh, I think I've only been here once before. I think that was at a conference. I don't think I've been here on a Sunday before. It's uh, it's a long time since I've been up to the frozen uh, north. (laughs) Uh, But it's really nice to be here. Um, And we're going to look at the second reading, the uh, passage from the New Testament. There are uh, two places in, in the Gospels where you have this incident recorded, Matthew 15, and also here in Mark chapter 7. Uh, There was a guy called um, uh, Carl Henry, who was the editor of Christianity Today for many years. And I remember reading years ago, reading a a quote from him. Uh, He said this, he said, Some people live all their lives just around the corner from the world of truth. Some people live all their lives just around the corner from the world of truth. Well, that was literally true for this woman. Uh, you notice in verse 26, we're told she is a Greek-speaking Syro-Phoenician by birth. Geographically, she lived just outside the borders of Israel, out, just outside the promised land. And spiritually, as I hope we'll see this morning, she's not far from the kingdom. She's just round the corner from the world of truth. And the trouble is, most of us are quite content to live just round the corner from the world of truth. The truth is sometimes difficult to live with, and we come up with a uh, thousand and one reasons uh, to live round the corner from the world of truth. I wonder, perhaps that may be where you are this morning, in church, but not yet in Christ. Perhaps you've been coming to this church for many years, but you're still not really in the faith. Just round the corner. Not totally committed to Jesus yet. Just still checking him out, perhaps, after many years. But you haven't come in yet. And my prayer and my hope this morning is that as we look at this testimony of this woman that it might uh, resonate with you, and that the Holy Spirit will work and, and bring you round the corner. You see, what happens here is that, uh, what happens when the truth comes round the corner to meet you? Because that's what happened to this woman. Jesus, who is the truth incarnate, walked into this woman's life, and her life was never the same again. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. I think this is probably one of the only occasions, I think it's one of the only occasions I can think of right now, at the moment anyway, where Jesus stepped outside the Promised Land. I know he went through Samaria, but uh, I think this is the only time when we find him in Gentile territory. And there are three things I want you to see this morning. Uh, First of all, I want you to see a divine appointment, and then... uh, an awkward, a very awkward conversation, and then um, an amazing outcome. So let's look at those three things this morning. What is Jesus doing outside uh, the promised land? Why does Jesus leave the promised land for pagan land? What's he doing here in Gentile territory? Uh, Some of the commentators suggest that he's taking a well-earned break, uh, we know if you read if you 've read mark 's gospel you 'll know that uh, constantly he 's trying to get away from the crowds there uh, ever since chapter six um, the crowds keep catching up with him, clamoring for him to perform miracles and uh, every time he tries to get a bit of a break, the crowds turn up again on the doorstep and in this chapter in chapter seven of mark 's gospel he 's just uh, had a rather heated exchange with the religious teachers, uh, and so some of the commentators suggest now he's just trying to get away for a, you know, a well-earned break. He steps over the border to take time out, and, and that would probably explain the, uh, the tetchiness. I don't know if that's a, a word we use in Australia. It's, it's a perhaps it's a Welsh word. I don't know. The irritability of the disciples, because uh, you know they've been looking forward to this uh, little. A mini holiday I suppose and uh, this woman is interrupting their, their time away uh, they're really annoyed with this woman for interrupting their holiday if you look at verse 24 you notice it says there that Jesus entered a house and didn't want anyone to know it yet he could not keep his presence secret you know what it's like sometimes you, you, you go away uh, to relax and to unwind and then the phone goes hello is, is that Jesus? <laughs> I know it's your day off, but... <laughs> now, maybe that's, it's that kind of a situation here. That's what was happening. That's what Jesus was doing in the vicinity of Tyre. Uh, but I want to suggest to you this morning that there's a far deeper and much more profound reason for this little excursion into Gentile territory. Maybe, and unbeknown to the disciples, Jesus has an appointment to keep with this, this poor woman. An appointment made in eternity before he ever came into this world. Paul explains it like this in Romans 8, probably one of the best-known best verses in the Bible. Uh, remember what he says, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and who are the called according to his purpose. I want to suggest to you that 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 is the the very real behind-the-scenes explanation of what's happening here. See, notice what Paul says, all things, all things work together for the good of those who are being called by God. Does that include a demon-possessed daughter? Look at verse 25, see, what brought this woman to Christ? It was an unimaginable evil. She had a demon-possessed daughter. It, it's hard for us to, to imagine this. Uh, just before I retired, I was a pastor up in Brisbane, right in the center of the city, and uh, from time to time you'd see kids on drugs, especially during the, the night, wandering around the city. Yeah. Sometimes you see pictures, don't you, of, of Kids on ice, and I don't mean on skating rinks now. You can see, uh, you know, the the personality change in their faces. It's hard for us to imagine, but this is a thousand times worse than that. This girl is possessed by an evil spirit. J.C. Ryle says this. He said this mother, no doubt, had been sorely tried. She'd seen her darling daughter vexed with the devil. And been unable to relieve her. And yet, he says, that trouble brought her to Christ. And taught her to pray. Without it, she might have lived and died in careless ignorance and never seen Jesus at all. Surely, says Ryle, it was good for her that she was afflicted. That's a thousand times removed from the prosperity gospel, isn't it? Surely it was good for her that she was afflicted. Mark this well, says old Bishop Ryle there's nothing which shows our ignorance so much as our impatience under trouble. We forget that every cross is a message from God and intended to do us good in the end. Trials are intended to make us think, to wean us from the world, to send us to our Bibles, to drive us to our knees. Health is a good thing, but sickness is far better if it leads us to God. Prosperity is a great mercy, but adversity is a greater one if it brings us to Christ. Anything, anything is better, says Ryle, than living in carelessness and dying in sin. Better a thousand times to be afflicted like this woman and like her flee to Christ than to live at ease like the rich fool and die at last without Christ and without hope. Don't you, don't you see then there, 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 there's great blessing wrapped up in the ugly circumstances of this woman's life. And that's what Paul means when he says that all things work together for the good of those whom God calls. It, it's not a blanket statement. It's not, you know, uh, oh, she'll be right. You know, just um, keep your chin up. Just uh, pack up all your troubles in your old kit bag and smile, smile, smile. It'll all be all right in the end. It won't be, my friends. It won't be all right for you in the end. Unless you're in Christ. Unless you've come to Jesus. The future for you is, is more horrific than what was happening in this girl's life. The future prepared for you is, is prepared for the devil and his angels. It will not be all right for you in the end unless you believe in Jesus. You see, this, is, this isn't fatalism. We mustn't, be, we mustn't confuse fatalism and faith. It will all turn out all in the end, all right in the end, people say. No, it won't, unless you believe in Jesus. But if you do believe in Jesus, for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose, all things work together for their everlasting good. See, God is not the author of evil. God is not to blame for all the bad things that happen to you in your life. But he can use even the worst things to bring you to himself. And he does, doesn't he? So here's this poor woman in desperate need. And Jesus just happens to be there in the vicinity. What a stroke of luck. No, it's not. It's the electing, predestinating love of God. He can bring the greatest good out of the most unimaginable tragedy. Think of Joseph and his amazing Technicolor dream coach. You know, the story of Joseph. Remember how his brothers dumped him in a pit and he got sold into slavery in, in Egypt and ended up in prison and, you remember how the story ends when his brothers eventually come down to Egypt to get corn uh, during the famine and uh, they discover that their brother who they thought they'd got rid of and he was long gone he he happens to be the second in charge of Egypt Uh, he's the prime minister of Egypt the most powerful man in the land and you remember what uh, what Joseph says to them when he reveals himself to them he says you meant it for evil he doesn't let them off the hook What they did to him was evil. It was wicked. It was sinful. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You see, God is able to make the wrath of men to praise him. God can bring good out of the most unimaginable evil. Think of the cross. That is the greatest evil of all. It's deicide, the cross. But out of that that wicked act of crucifying the Son of God, the greatest good has come, the salvation of men and women and boys and girls. So this isn't um, an unwelcome interruption to Jesus's weekend away. This is a divine appointment. It's an, the keeping of an appointment made in eternity. And it leads into a, a, a very awkward conversation, doesn't it? Look at the way Jesus uh, deals with this woman in her need. It, it's, it's quite shocking, really, when you think about it. It's not very Christian. <laughs> She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter, it says there in verse 26. And what does Jesus do? He insults her. It's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs, he says. That doesn't sound like Jesus, does it? It doesn't sound very Christian. That's no way to treat a lady. At best, it's insensitive, at worst, it's downright rude and and positively insulting. Get away from me, you Gentile dog, he says to her. What have I got to do with you? I came only for the lost tribes of the house of Israel, not for Gentiles like you. That's so harsh, isn't it? Doesn't sound like Jesus at all. It's sexist, it's racist, it's bigoted, isn't it? Or is it? Mark tells us that, that she was a Greek-speaking Syrophoenician and if they were speaking Greek rather than Aramaic, the word would be a, a diminutive, in other words, it would be a little dog or puppy dog. That makes a bit of a difference, not much of a difference, but it makes a bit of a difference. Not, not the wild, you know, um, scavenging dogs foaming at the mouth, scavenging in the dustbins, but the, the household pet. I don't think I'd like to be called a dog, but I, I wouldn't mind so much being called a puppy. I don't think so anyway. <laughs> Not so much. There's a playfulness about that, isn't there? And then, of course, you have to, um, you have to allow for the body language and, and the tone of voice and the twinkle in the eye, which, of course, you don't get in your translation. And maybe this is a little bit speculative. I remember when I first began in ministry, a lifetime ago now, 50 years ago, actually, um, in Wales, a young pastor. I was the only evangelical minister in my presbytery. It was quite a large presbytery, and I was the only evangelical. And uh, I can remember that the other ministers in that presbytery were very, very keen to uh, wean me away from my fundamentalism and uh, into the wastelands of liberalism. (laughs) And there was one guy in particular, he kept trying to meet up with me, you know, let's 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 do lunch together let's let's have coffee and he was very persistent about it and uh, i i knew what his agenda was and i remember it all ended like this in the end he said to me uh, look you're saying yes you're saying yes with your lips but your eyes are saying no and he was dead he was he's dead right i had no intention of meeting up with him because i knew what he wanted to do and and in a sense you know this what, what, what's happening here is kind of the reverse of that. See, see when, when this woman comes to Jesus, begging for his help, he says no, it seems, doesn't it? He says no, but I think he's looking yes. In other words, there was something in the tone of his voice and, and the expression of his face that, that encouraged her to persist because persist she does. See, Jesus may well have been, I mean, this is, again, we have to think our way into this, but Jesus may well have been picking up on the, the negative vibes of his disciples. You know, Matthew tells us that they begged him to send her away, get rid of her. She's spoiling our holiday. And, and so Jesus, maybe perhaps, you know, with a backwards glance at his scowling disciples, he says to her, why should I help you? You know what uh, you know what we Jews call you Gentiles, don't you? Why should I take children's bread and toss it to the dogs? Salvation is of the Jews, and you're a Gentile. Now, now, however you look at it, that's still pretty heavy, isn't it? It's still pretty offensive. But the remarkable thing is that she doesn't take offence. Look at verse 28. Yes, Lord, she says. But but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. You see, this is so important. She doesn't argue with Jesus. She agrees with him. She accepts what Jesus says. She doesn't say, but Lord, that's not fair. I didn't ask to be born a Gentile. I didn't ask to be born and brought up outside of Israel. Anyway, why should the Jews have all the privileges? No, yes, Lord, she says, whatever arrangements you make to bring grace into the world, whatever arrangements you you make to bring grace to sinners is right. No one deserves it. No one deserves even a crumb of your grace, let alone to sit down at the table and feast on it. If you choose a nation to sit at the table, that's grace. And that's the whole story of the Old Testament, isn't it? Why did God choose the Jews? Not because they were bigger or better than anyone else or more inclined to believe than anyone else. It was pure grace. It was because he decided that he wanted to love them, not because of anything in them. Look, if you choose a nation to sit at the table, I've got no quarrel with that. That's grace. And if there's grace going, can I have some? Can't you give a little dog a crumb? That's what she's saying. Do you see? She accepts. She she accepts God's plan of salvation. Jesus calls it faith. She accepts God's plan of salvation to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. She doesn't quarrel with that. She acknowledges that the Jews have first bite of the cherry. She accepts that the Jews have first place in the economy of God's grace. She simply asks to be fed on the leftovers. And Jesus says to her, For such a reply you may go. The demon has left your daughter. And that is an amazing outcome. That's the last point. That is an amazing outcome, isn't it? See, don't misunderstand what's happening here. This isn't a a battle of wits. Jesus isn't saying, You clever woman, you got the better of me there. He's simply recognizing, in this woman's reply, her faith. He's affirming her faith. Matthew makes that plain. Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith, Matthew says in his account. It's not a battle of wits. This is not repartee. They're not sparring partners. Her her daughter is possessed. That's not a subject to quip about. There's great suffering here. There's great tragedy here. No, this is faith. And do you see how faith works? Look at it with me. Just, she's, she's got such a view. Uh, you know, what fills her horizon is the need that her daughter has. She, this, she's got a demon-possessed daughter. And the greatest things that she could imagine is that Jesus would save that little girl of hers. And yet, it's only a crumb of what he can do for his people. That's great faith, isn't it? Spurgeon put it like this. He says, It's like like turning a key in a lock. The same key which locks will also unlock. It all depends on uh, which way you turn it. And still more, he says... The same key which locks will also unlock. It all depends on the turn of the key and still more on the turn of your thoughts. You see, it, it looks like Jesus has slammed the door in your face, doesn't it? It looks like Jesus is shutting her, shutting her out of the kingdom. It's not right to take the children's bread and, and toss it to the dogs. But do you see what faith does. Instead of going away with her her tail between her legs, she takes hold of those very same words of Jesus which seem to lock her out of the kingdom and she turns them around the other way to open the door. Yes, Lord, she says. But even dogs, the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She calls him Lord. She recognizes him as the Jewish Messiah. Matthew tells us she gives him his proper messianic title. She calls him the son of David. Yes, Lord. Salvation is of the Jews. There's nothing relativistic about this. It's not that uh, you know, she could have come to know the Lord a Syrophoenician way, uh, that all religions have the different paths. To... No, it's not that. Salvation is of the Jews. They're God's people chosen by him to bring the knowledge of God to the rest of the world. She acknowledges that. She accepts that. She... You see, what I'm trying to say is this. What appears to be a most discouraging truth, what appears to be shutting her out and sending it away, is actually she turns the key the other way, doesn't she? That's what faith does. Yes, Lord, you are the one they've all been waiting for, and I'm only a Gentile dog, and I don't have a place at the table, but even the dogs can eat the crumbs that fall from the children's table. And I want to say to you uh, this morning, there's not a truth in the Bible that is meant to keep you away from Jesus. Not even this truth. This difficult doctrine of election and predestination, which a lot of people have difficulties with. I hope, look, if you have a problem with election and predestination, I, I understand that. But if you're a believer, a, please don't say I can't accept that. If you're a believer in Jesus, election predestination of bible words <laughs> this is a truth a great truth that we've got to grapple with and people often you know use it as an excuse take this doctrine you see god has chosen the jews to be his people they're the children at the table presently being fed in the economy of god's grace yes lord she says but surely if you're a God of sovereign electing grace, there must be some left over for me. If I can't sit at the table, at least let me crawl under it. That's faith. See, for, for some people, election is a narrow doctrine. It makes God out to be less than generous, parceling out his grace to the chosen few. Where do you get that idea from? Where do you get the idea that there are only a few people who are chosen? God promised to Abraham that they would be more than can be numbered. This idea of the chosen few, or today the chosen frozen perhaps, it's not a biblical idea. Faith takes hold of the truth of election. And instead of being discouraged by it or put off by it, faith lays hold of it. She doesn't say, oh, well, I'm not one of the elect. No, that's unbelief. Faith takes hold of this very same truth and turns it a different way. A God who can elect a whole nation to such privileges will surely have grace enough and to spare for me. See, there's, there's not one doctrine or truth in the Bible that's meant to keep you from coming to Christ. If you think there is, you're reading the Bible the wrong way. It's unbelief that shuts us out and locks up the Bible to us. Faith brings us in, unlocks all the doors and overcomes all the obstacles it brings us into the world of truth and that's what happened here this woman this poor woman who'd lived all her life just around the corner a gentile by birth an upbringing an alien to the commonwealth of israel a stranger to the covenants and promises without hope and without god in the world now by faith she enters in she lays hold of christ and she will not take no for an answer And isn't that the real irony of this story? That's why Mark places it here, back to back with Israel's unbelief. You you know what Israel means, don't you? You know where that name comes from? It comes from the passage we read, the Old Testament passage. You you know where that name comes from? Jacob wrestling with God. You You know the story of that in the Old Testament? I will not let you go unless you bless me. And God says to him, your name will no longer be Jacob, twister, deceiver. Your name will no longer be that. Your name will no longer be Jacob. It will be Israel. Because you have struggled with God and you have prevailed. Well, if that's what Israel means, this woman is an Israelite, isn't she? A true Israelite. She's wrestled with God and she's prevailed. There's a lovely cheekiness about her faith, isn't there? It's his day off. He's on holiday. The disciples have put a no, uh, do not disturb sign on the door. That doesn't stop her. He's otherwise engaged. He's the Jewish Messiah. He's been sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That doesn't stop her either. This same Jesus is about to go to the cross and then be raised again on the first day and ascend into heaven and from heaven pour out his Holy Spirit on all flesh. The time of the Gentiles is coming. And she's got her foot in the door. And she's not going to take no for an answer. She's not going anywhere until Jesus gives her what she asks for. And my friends, I want to say to you, that's what you must do. If you're living around the corner from the world of truth. Don't stay there. Don't just keep coming to church. Checking things out take hold of jesus as he's presented to you in the gospel don't let him go until he blesses you ask jesus says keep on asking seek keep on seeking knock keep on knocking all the more so now because now is the now is the age of the gentiles Now is the time when the nations are coming in. That's why we send missionaries out. Because now is the time of harvest. Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Lord, we do not presume to come to your table, most merciful Lord, trusting in our own goodness, but in your all-embracing love and mercy. We're not worthy even to gather up the crumbs from under your table. But it is your nature always to have mercy. And so we pray, Lord, that you would uh, have mercy upon us, upon our friends, our family. We pray, Lord, that we might ever look forward to that day when we will sit down with you and with abraham and isaac and the others in the great messianic banquet and celebrate uh, your great salvation and so we we praise you and worship you for who you are the savior of the world and we give you thanks in jesus name amen